You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. As we just heard in the headlines, the latest COVID counts today are 961 new cases statewide with a positivity rate of 7.5%. The Healthcare Association of Hawaii has been tracking those numbers closely. Hilton Rathel, who represents hospitals and long-term facilities across the state, talked to us this morning. He says we could very well hit 1,000 cases tomorrow. Here on Oahu, there were 866 cases with a 9.5% positivity rate, which he says is not good. When it comes to bed space, could we reach a point of no room at the end? Our hospitals are already full. They uh, have been full for actually essentially since July. We're running an elevated census compared to historical levels. We had the COVID surge, and then when the COVID surge abated, we, our hospitals continue to be full with uh, non-COVID patients and people who have a variety of illnesses and ailments. And so even though we have, as of yesterday, 60 COVID patients in our hospitals, nine of those were in the ICU, a total census was up over 2,200, so 2,239. And we have over 200 temporary staff from the mainland in our hospitals right now helping us to cope with our census. So Because our hospitals are already full, we are concerned about a significant potential COVID surge because that would further stress hospitals that are already running at above normal census levels. Well, you know, when we saw the surge due to Delta, it was a little different picture. We were trying to get our vaccination rates up. You know, we've done that. I think we still need to do some work on the boosters. Well, the Omicron variant is much more contagious than the Delta variant. So there's good news and bad news. The bad news is that it is much more contagious and it spreads much more rapidly to more people and it doesn't require the same level of exposure that the Delta variant was for people to be infected. So that's one of the reasons that it's spreading as fast as is because you can catch it with much less exposure. Now, the good news is that The rate of hospitalization and deaths from Omicron cases does appear to be lower right now. And the vaccines and especially the boosters do protect at a very high level against serious illness and deaths. The problem is one of the challenges is that the Omicron variant, if someone's had Delta before or one of the early variants, the Alpha, the Gamma, if they were exposed to that, that does not appear to provide any protection at all against Omicron. So if someone is unvaccinated, even if they've been exposed to a prior variant, that does not help them with Omicron. And anyone who's unvaccinated, and especially if they don't have a booster, they are still at a very high risk for hospitalization and severe illness. And Delta is still out there. So it's not just Omicron. So we're dealing still with both Delta and Omicron. And while... The current vaccines are effective at preventing severe hospitalization and death for those who are vaccinated. The unvaccinated are at a very high risk of exposure to either the Delta or the Omicron variant and potentially hospitalization and severe illness. How are we sitting for our supplies, whether it's testing, oxygen, you know, or any of the treatments that are available? We are looking at all of the different areas of concern. In regard to oxygen, we are in good shape right now. We've already reestablished discussions with the oxygen suppliers in the state and with the Department of Health and Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. So oxygen, we're monitoring that very closely. The levels are slightly, the oxygen consumption levels are slightly elevated over normal because our hospitals are full, but we are in good shape. The good news is that Omicron, if you are in hospital because of Omicron, it doesn't tend the number of people, the proportion of people who need to be on a ventilator or on high flow oxygen does appear to be lower. So that's good. So we think we're in pretty good shape with oxygen for right now. PPE, we've hospitals, all the facilities, doctors' offices have been stopping up, stocking up on PPE supplies. We um, we do have our tents, what we call our acute care modules, our tent systems available. We've already had a request from one of our hospitals to put up a tent, and 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 the hospitals use that for triage and to help with the overflow from the emergency rooms. So they've got more space to spread out, especially if they're dealing with um, COVID-positive patients. So we do have our tent systems ready to be deployed if necessary to complement our emergency rooms, and we have those across the state. 
Can you say which hospital has requested that? The hospital that has requested that is Straub Clinic and Hospital, and they had a tent system during the Delta surge, and they have requested one. And we expect to get additional requests from other hospitals as well. And we have been hearing a lot about healthcare workers because, you know, it's been a long haul here. We're going into the third year. And, you know, you mentioned we have some of those temporary workers. We did see that Haima is not stepping down on, uh, on the guards. Guard. Right. On the National Guard. The National yes. Guard. Well, healthcare workers is our biggest vulnerability within the state because our hospitals are already full. And our hospitals have been full, as I just mentioned, back to July. So people are tired, they're worn out, they're frustrated because this, you know, just like we all are, because this is going on and on and on. And this it just wears on people. And so one of the concerns we have with Omicron is because it spreads so rapidly, if it does get into the healthcare community, that people will have to, you know, if, if you've got healthcare workers and they're infected or exposed, then they normally quarantine for seven to 10 days, which means they're not available for work. And so we already have a few dozen healthcare workers who've been exposed to Omicron who are not working right now. So if it spreads at a much wider rapid rate, which it could, we could lose a lot of healthcare workers, not that they're sick or hospitalized, but simply because they've been exposed and or positive, and therefore they can't work for a period of time, which decreases the number of healthcare workers we have. So, and that puts pressure on the people who are, you know, who are not sick or not been exposed. So we um, do anticipate needing to bring in additional staff from the mainland to one, help deal with the expected rise in hospitalizations and also to backfill those healthcare workers who have been potentially exposed or um, have symptoms from the virus. So what is the message that you would like to get out there as we uh, gather with our families this holiday? Well, our message is to celebrate with family and friends because it is important to have those emotional and physical connections with people. But wherever possible, you know, do it outside or in well-ventilated areas. People who are not vaccinated should wear masks inside. You know, I know that's problematic, uh, you know, especially if you're dealing with families and friends, but this virus is very, very problematic. The, the Omicron virus spreads at a very, very rapid rate. And unfortunately, you know, if, you, if people are not vaccinated, they should get vaccinated. If they don't have the boosters, they should get the booster. And, you know, large gatherings are much more problematic because when you've got hundreds of people together, there's much more risk of exposure. So keep the gatherings as small as possible and keep them outdoors and in well-ventilated areas as possible. But you know, we do want people, that people's emotional health, their mental health is very important as well. And what are we seeing as far as the boosters? Are enough of our children getting the shot? Uh, AARP is a little concerned that uh, the rate of boosters in some of our long-term care facilities uh, among patients and staff is lagging. We are not doing as well as we would like in regard to boosters, and we are working on efforts to, especially in our long-term care facilities for residents and staff, to get the booster rates up. Part of it is just a manpower issue and because the healthcare workforce is so stretched is finding enough healthcare workers to run all these large booster clinics or to go and do a lot of booster clinics. So we are not doing as well as many other states. We have about 23% of our fully vaccinated adults are, um, have boosters right now and we would like that number to be much higher. So there are some initiatives to do that and to increase the rate of boosters in the state. And if we get to a point where our ICUs are full, uh, I don't know, are you, are you in contact with the military at all? Uh, you know, what's the situation there? Some uh, states are deploying National Guard, for example. The federal government is looking at that as well. Unfortunately, in Hawaii, most of the National Guard personnel who are in healthcare already have jobs and are working in healthcare. And so if they get activated, problem is you're just moving them from one setting to another setting. So you pull them out of one setting so they can move in a different setting and that doesn't help us overall. So in, in Hawaii, we do not have a large contingent of medical personnel on standby, you know, to help us win our hospitals again because most of them are working. So that's not a very effective solution. We've looked at mm -hmm. that before. The biggest most effective solution for us is what we did in the August-September timeframe, which is to work with the staffing agencies and the funding agencies like FEMA 
to bring in staff from the mainland. We are, we have had preliminary discussions with staffing agency and we believe we can get the personnel into the state if necessary. Has there ever been a situation where we've had civilians go to Tripler if they've had bed space? That is a possibility, but it does require approval from Washington. So the local command here does not have the authority to use federal assets for civilians, but it, can, it is a possibility. But we do have capacity in our hospitals, and we, the main issue is staffing, and Tripler has a staffing issue as well because they only have the staff to take care of the patients they already have. So they, you know, if they were to take on, if there were to be a significant surge in the military, they would probably have to bring in staff from the mainland just mm-hmm. to help them. So they, from a bed capacity perspective, they have some available beds, but we do have available beds in our other hospitals. It's primarily staffing that is our issue. That was Hilton Rathel, president of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, with the latest COVID snapshot. After the pandemic took toll on our kapuna early on, vaccines were made a priority among our long-term care facilities. ARP Hawaii says our state ranked among the highest to have patients and staff vaccinated against the virus. But the latest statistics show in November that Hawaii lagged in getting boosters in the arms of those most at risk. Kaylee Lopez is the head of ARP Hawaii. We talked to her this morning. We've got the skilled nursing homes, which is what the dashboard is on. And then you have these smaller community-based adult residential care homes and such. So what the the state has done is move forward with the same process it had for vaccination with boosters. So on a state level, those smaller care homes have had the same kind of support they had beforehand. It's these larger skilled nursing homes where they've had to make that kind of adjustment. And yes, work with local pharmacies and enter into their own agreements to have that occur. People just have not taken the booster part seriously because we had that perceived decline in cases. And now that it's going back up, I would imagine boosters are going to become a great level of urgency. So Hawaii is still above You know, the nursing homes are still above the national average. But again, at the same time, for those of us, you know, those who have family members in these skilled nursing homes would definitely like to see those numbers increase significantly so that more people, the staff and residents, are getting boosters. Do we have a handle on whether the uh, mandates are working at all in some of these areas? You know, I think they are. Again, with Hawaii, you know, if you want to just look at vaccinations without the boosters, Hawaii has about 93% of um, residents are fully vaccinated and about 96% of staff are fully vaccinated. So from that perspective, Hawaii has been one of the leading um, states with regards to the vaccination. It's just now trying to get the boosters to be aligned and and move forward on that. It almost seems, I don't know, deja vu. It is deja vu. And I think that's the part that's really frustrating a lot of people, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, government and staff members in these healthcare facilities and the facilities themselves. Because again, we've seen even the number of deaths you know, as tragic as they are, have decreased significantly. And our concern really has been that ARP has had to create this dashboard to be able to have information. And Hawaii still is one of the states that does not provide more detailed information related to the number of cases or deaths in each of the different facilities. So that's something we'd still like to see some improvement in. I think it's helpful for people to know if your loved one is in a facility where either the cases of COVID have gone up or, you know, deaths and that situation. So again, it's looking very good, but we only have data through November at this point. And it'd be great to know, you know, where we are as a state 
with the significant um, increases in COVID cases. We just don't know what that's looking like in the nursing homes. Yeah, I mean, and you have this chorus that has been very vocal, I think, you know, about the lack of good data, timely data, because it doesn't help to get it months later when, you know, you could be using that information to make decisions about policy. Exactly. And so the dashboard information, you know, we shared with you just goes through November 21st. And here we are almost a month away. So we're going to have to wait till later, the end of this month or early January to find out what it's been like for December. So that's the frustration. Have you heard back at all from the State Health Department or the Healthcare Association about how we can step up getting these boosters in the arms? Again, one of the things that they're doing is partnering with the local pharmacies. And I think part of the challenge was, you know, could be, although it's not the case with nursing homes, you know, for individuals, there is the, some requirements for waiting six months. However, many of these nursing home residents were vaccinated in the early part of this year and should be eligible already. So one, you've got the waiting for people to be eligible generally, and then you've got to be able to have the capacity. And And some of the challenges have been really the fact that so many people still need to get the first two doses of the vaccine. And that's where some priority has been given to that over boosters, right? So they're wanting to get folks. So part of it's a combination of both of those. It's it's kind of like those two storms coming together where you still have people who need to get vaccinated. And then now you're trying to get through and be able to give people boosters. So it's kind of a combination of those two things coming together. And I mean that in the general public, not so much the nursing homes. Right, because the people most at risk are those who are unvaccinated. And so they're still having to compete for the demand of the availability of, of the vaccinations. But we're, we're hopeful that folks are taking it seriously. And, you know, my sense is parents are more willing to, you know, ensure that their children are safe and open to looking at that. And our hope is that when they're having their children vaccinated, parents are deciding to get vaccinated at the same time. And I think there's been some trend related to that as well. What has been the challenge in trying to get residents and staff the booster, given that the, the federal programs that were in place for regular vaccinations isn't in place in, for boosters, and what are they doing about that? And then again, whether there's just a challenge with the demand for the vaccine and whether that's a hindrance at all. And then the care home situation, have you been able to check in with, the, with that association? So the, the, the care home, yeah, the care home process is going very well in that the program that the state put in place for the initial vaccination process has been duplicated again for boosters. So the pharmacists are going into those homes and giving boosters to the staff and residents. I suspect that that's the same approach now that they're using for for the skilled nursing homes. So again, I think it's just a matter of capacity and timing. And I think the other thing is perhaps the importance of a booster wasn't as clear as it is now, meaning now with Omicron coming on, people are recognizing the significant importance of the booster. So we're hoping to see a really significant increase in people getting boosters in nursing homes and the adult residential care facilities and foster family care facilities. That was Kaylee Lopez, head of AARP Hawaii, talking about a concern that the state is lagging in getting boosters to its nursing home residents and staff. That is the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Kevin Dayton is on the line today. Good morning. Hi there, Catherine. Hey, so I know we've got a um, uh, meeting this afternoon of the Reapportionment Commission, and that's, I know, kind of like making sausage. 
Uh, a, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, the, uh, the, the original maps, you may remember, were pretty controversial uh, when the State Reapportionment Commission uh, began redrawing the House and Senate districts. They made some huge changes to the, the House districts, and, and that caused a lot of, of uh, concern and, and worry among insiders, among political insiders, especially House incumbents. The, the insiders were upset mostly because the maps would have put 10 House Democrats in districts with other House Democrats. And that would have triggered as many as five Democratic primary races if that map had been the final version that's going to be passed. And obviously, you know, incumbents would just as soon not have a primary if they can avoid it. And so there were, there were a lot of objections. Um, a lot of that was, was taken to uh, House Speaker Scott Psyche, who is sort of perceived to have a lot of influence over the process because he appointed uh, two members to the Reapportionment Commission. Many of those issues that were concerning people so much seem to have been resolved in a new draft that was just released online last week. A bottom line, it looks like the latest maps don't set up any primary races for any of the House incumbents next year. And that's thanks in part to the decision by uh, Representative Sylvia Luke to run for lieutenant governor. Yeah, so so uh, you've got a little scoop here about her district. Yeah, well, uh, what they did was, the, the problem that the Reapportionment Commission has been trying to cope with has been that the, the growth, um, the dramatic growth in Eva and Kapole means that that area deserves additional representation. It should get an additional district. But to put an additional district there, they're going to have to dissolve some district or basically reduce the number of districts in the urban core in Honolulu. Um, they had originally planned to do that by dissolving the 19th district, which is represented by Bert Kobayashi. Um, but when Sylvia Luke decided that she was going to run for lieutenant governor, that it made more sense, basically, since there's nobody running for re-election in that district, it made more sense to dissolve that district and sort of apportion that territory out to the surrounding areas around it. And that sort of helps keep the peace politically as well, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the earlier drafts, I know, you know, made everybody crazy because they were doing things like uh, lumping Portlock in with Waimanalo, cutting up, I think, Manoa, cutting up, oh, I think a, a part of Kalihi, a state housing project. Uh, yeah, so lots of lots of things that made people mad. Right, and some of that hasn't been completely taken care of. Um, there, there are still concerns that that house district that reaches would extend basically from the Enchanted Lake area through Waimanalo and over to include parts of Portlock, well, Portlock and Hawaii Kai. That's still on the new maps, and so that's probably going to be the subject of a lot of discussion today at the commission because a lot of people are still upset about that. They think those are not similar communities and they ought not to be packaged together in a single district. Some people believe that that will dilute the Hawaiian vote in Waimanalo uh, unfairly. Um, so that's that's certainly part of the puzzle. So they haven't solved all the problems yet. They haven't, haven't addressed all the objections, but at least they took care of the political insiders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, uh, you know, when you do have, you know, veteran lawmakers from the same party, uh, you know, butting heads in a race. I mean, you know, it, it is too bad because, you know, some of those lawmakers are uh, have been very good representatives for their districts. And so to oh. lose a veteran lawmaker, you know, can hurt. Of course. And I mean, some of the names are very familiar to people. For instance, in Pearl City, um, the original maps had proposed packaging Greg Takayama and Roy Takumi together. I think Roy is probably the longest, one of the longest sitting House members. Very experienced. Um and, and, you know, that would be a loss to the, to the sort of institution. Um, there were others. Uh, for instance, another one is uh, Adrian Tam. He's, he's a much newer representative. I believe he's in his freshman year. He would have been packaged with uh, House Speaker Scott Psyche. Now, that was resolved in a different way. Um, representative Tam decided he was going to move into Waikiki so he could continue to represent that area. And it basically took him out of Kaka'ako. So there's different ways that they're resolving these things, but they, they seem to be keeping the peace. Okay, well, we'll have to monitor the uh, afternoon uh, reimportionment meeting, see if there are any additional fireworks that uh, that explode this afternoon. I'm guessing there will be. I'm thinking there will be. <laughs> All right, and we know you'll be on top of it, but thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you, Catherine. All right, we have been talking to reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read his full story on reapportionment, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with online and in-person courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Tuesday, January 18th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. On the next On Being for Christmas, a life of holy curiosity in a world of religious wandering. I speak with the exquisitely wise and tender journalist and preacher Jeff Chu, who has brought the final book of the late Rachel Held Evans into the world. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Beginning Sunday morning at 10, following the New Yorker Radio Hour. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the Homa Shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. You were back with the conversation. And on the long view today, political scientist Neil Milner is here to talk about the tipping point. Good morning, Neil. Hi, Catherine. So, what are we talking about? Well, what we're talking about is the decline and perhaps the destruction of American democracy. And there's been a lot of stuff about that with scholars and political analysts and pundits and so on that have talked about the decline and that we may be reaching a crucial stage. Um, and what's happened recently is research that has taken a more closer look at how that happens and what's the point at which there is no return. And there's a series of papers, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which you may not normally associate with uh, political analysis. And then Thomas Edsel's very good piece in the New York Times, where he looks at these papers more closely, translates them into better English, and talks about it. So... Here's the deal. The deal is we know that there are some things that have been very basically wrong about democracy in the last few years. What the research is looking at is what, at what point is it a point of no return when the kind of democratic norms that, say, guide us with elections, um, the electoral process, have gone beyond the point of no return, where those norms just disappear. There's not the trust. There's not an acceptance of election. There may be violence. And that's one question. The other question that got people interested in is what happened to the process that used to exist in this country where there would be a big crisis that would affect everybody, but instead of unifying everybody, it created greater polarization. And the best recent example of that is COVID. Um, and another recent example that I think comes close is also the uh, 2020 presidential election. So, with that in mind, here's the deal. What's the tipping point? The tipping point is the point at which it's a point of no return, where you can't go back anymore to where you were before. If you think about the, our kind of political history, our recent history, we have, we have fits and starts. People disagree, and then they come together, but there's always a little lingering of a past disagreement so on and so forth, but a unifying thing, a, a, a crisis comes along and unifies people. A tipping point is where it can't be unified anymore, where, in fact, the, instead of the crisis unifying, it just makes everything more, more polarizing. Um, and, by the way, this is a term, you, the tipping points you can find in the natural sciences and everywhere else. But what seems to be the, what seems to be the most important factors in this, and here is where kind of standard social science research and the kind of mathematical modeling that's now going on shows the same thing. The drivers are political party identification, which is now the primary driver. Your politics, your, the, the party you associate with, drives virtually every decision you make about politics, what you see as being good, what you see as being bad. The other thing is that We've reached a point where essentially we don't talk to anybody but people we agree with on politics. As those two things get more and more locked in, you're more likely to have this kind of tipping point at which a crisis um, doesn't bring about unity, it brings about disunity. 
and if you think about where we are right now on in the, in the basis of two uh, electoral situations, let's call them, um, that that under some circumstances people wouldn't even think was happening, and under other circumstances there would be disagreement, but people would finally say, okay, get along with it. One of which, of course, is the contested 2020 election where the majority of Republicans still feel that the election was stolen, that Trump won. And I should point out to you that the research here shows that the Republicans are much more Republican elites and voters are much more down the line of being past the tipping point. The Democrat, Democratic voters aren't quite there yet, but they're moving in that kind of direction. So you have this situation where your friends and neighbors essentially disagree whether the election was fair. So that's one example. You have all of these kind of laws that are clearly being passed to limit the ability of people to vote. Um, I know there are other kinds of things due to justification of that. Those two things really suggest that the democratic norms that covered, uh, normally covered elections, that elections are fair and generally uh, well, not politicized, you let the election officials run it, those things are certainly by the board in terms of anything like agreement. And those things are likely to play themselves out. And if they play themselves out to a certain extent, you're going to lose those democratic norms, the taken-for-granted kind of things like dealing with elections and so on. You can say this about this is about Trump, which it is to some extent, but the influence that Trump had and the way people began to think about politics really has changed. Yeah. What do you say to the optimists, you know, who say, okay, there's a tipping point, but they still think you can get it back into balance? Well, I would listen respectfully, but I would say to them, if you're going to make an argument about electing the right person to bring this back, I don't think that's a very good argument, because I don't think this is simply about the right person at the right time. I mean, look at the example of Joe Biden. Whether you like him or not, whether you think he's good or not, um, a person who really was elected fairly now has the office, and it hasn't made any kind of change at all in the direction of polarization. It's probably made, made things worse. You can talk about other candidates. It might make a marginal amount of difference, but I, I ask people like this, look at what the results have been in Congress and so on. I'm not dismissing some optimism. I'm not dismissing some possibility that the Republican Party isn't as strong for Trump. Some conservatives have made this argument. Not as strong for Trump as people seem to think he is. I don't think that's the case right now. And I don't think that this is simply a political issue. Politics is a limited way of getting things done. And we can see when we try to get these kinds of things done through the political process, it has limits. And if you look at January 6th, which is another example of total differences on this, and people within the Republican Party especially trying to write a revisionist history of this. So I'm not saying there's always room for some kind of optimism, but I don't think people can keep their head in the sand to think that the next election is going to solve this or that the right candidate's going to solve this, or that Glenn Youngkin, who got elected governor of Virginia, by kind of walking the line of not explicitly criticizing Trump, um, but taking a kind of position that's uh, a little bit more um, redefined and subtle than what, than what Trump did. All of those things can be important, but they don't get to this fundamental process by which the democratic norms are going to be destroyed. There's also a fair amount of evidence that there's a group of people who not only think that the election was stolen and that the electoral process was unfair, but that they're willing to use violence to try to overcome this. I just want to make one more remark about this. You have to remember how much January 6th was about your friends and your neighbors participating. What I mean by that is not literally, but that 
many of the, and probably most of the participants in the January 6th insurrection were not Proud Boys. Uh, they were not motorcycle gangs. They were kind of average people with above average income, most of them working, who just were convinced that the election was stolen and that you have to stop the steal by violence if necessary. So I think this is not the greatest message to bring to people into the new year, but I think you have to start understanding just where we are and where and, and how little you can rely on elections to do this when right now it looks like the whole electoral process is politicized and polarized. Well, some heavy stuff to think about on this uh, holiday season. Yes, it is. But I hope you have a Merry Christmas and a you Happy too. New have, Year. You too. Have a good holiday, and I'll talk to you after the first of the year. All right. Sounds Take like care. a plan. Thanks so much, Neil. We have been talking to Neil Milner, our contributing editor, on a segment we call The Long View. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And on our Manu Minute today, we are dishing up a bird that is often seen but not heard. The Eba, the great frigate bird, flies high above our heads, performing acrobatic feats midair. We've got the song of this storied seabird today, thanks to the McCulley Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo's Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. One of the most distinctive birds in the skies above Hawaii is the Eva, or Great Frigate Bird. Dark black and a bit ominous looking, they have a distinctive bent wing silhouette when in flight, with long pointed wings, a long hooked bill, and a deeply forked tail. Eva are found in oceans throughout the tropics, and while they're often seen on all the main Hawaiian islands, they nest primarily in shrubs and small trees in the northwest Hawaiian islands. Eva are incredibly agile flyers, and they use this maneuverability to harass other seabirds in flight and force them to drop their food, which they'll often grab in mid-air. The biological term for this pirate-like behavior is kleptoparasitism, and this has led to their Hawaiian name of Eva, which means thief, though they actually do catch the majority of their food themselves by skimming the ocean's surface for fish and squid. Eva have the largest wings for their body weight of any bird in the world, and recent studies using satellite transmitters have shown that they can fly over two months without landing. While they're incredible flyers, they lack the ability to take off from water, and they're also very clumsy on land. Eva are one of those birds that are much more often seen than heard. The best place to hear their vocalizations are on their breeding grounds, where the males attempt to attract females by blowing up a brilliant orange balloon-like pouch below their bills and uttering a hoarse cackle when the female comes near. Unlike many other native bird species in Hawaii, the Eva seem to be doing well, with a population size estimated at 60,000 birds or more. Eva have a lifespan of about 35 years, and like many seabirds, wait a long time before they first breed, in their case, nine years or older. Eva are featured prominently in Hawaiian culture, and their glossy black feathers were used in the kahili of royalty and in feathered capes. One well-known Olelo Noeau proclaims, Lele ka Eva malie kaiko'o, meaning, when the Eva bird flies out to sea, the rough sea will be calm. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. albums are an annual tradition going back decades. Here in Hawaii, everyone from the Brothers Cousin Mero to Amy Hanaili'i to Josh Totofi has released one. 
Among those making new Christmas music this year, the ukulele and guitar students of Namaka'o Pu'uwai Aloha, a music and dance school in Waipahu. They released a short album this month titled A Vintage Christmas. It features six classic Christmas songs, all voiced and played by the young musicians. Jonah Davis is the class instructor. He's a former member of local bands Ka'ena and Tropical 50 and has been teaching ukulele and guitar for over a decade. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Davis to get the story behind this album. I hand chose the main five songs that's in there. And so these are the students that, you know, show so much talent and they've been very involved and committed. And so I figure, you know, I, you know, and I talk to all of them, I'll tell you, you know what, hey, this is the way uncle thinks, all right? I think you're so talented. I think you've got an amazing gift and why not try? Why not see what you can do with it? If you like it, great, let's do more. If you don't, no need, you know what I mean? But at least you have something under your belt and you can say that, hey, I've recorded a real album. And so it's all about creating experiences because Namako Pu'uwai Aloha is a beautiful family-oriented uh, studio. You know, everybody's very tight, very close. It's non-competitive. You know, we don't want to put our kids anywhere competition is, you know, but as a musician, in order to do things, you got to get out there. And then, so when I tell them to, hey, you know, why don't you try try this and let's see what happens there. Just remember, it's not for competition's sake, it's for the experience. So you get to see a different group of people out there. So I teach my kids literally how to perform the whole nine song list, different styles of playing. I don't tell them what to play more as I teach them the basic skills needed so that they can just independently play with the kids like they all come from different backgrounds and they all have a desire and I think at that age we all do you know we look at our uh, idols or our, our musician influences you know and you know just television as a whole especially in just this generation social media is king right they see what they see and they want to recreate what they see, not realizing, okay, how do they do it? So I'm in a position where I can help them safely transition into a new space if that's exactly where they want to go. And I have kids that uh, are, you know, they've been with me for a long, long time. Kara and Bryant, the Up on the Housetop. Kara was one of my very first students there, and all these years, she's still there. She's still with me. She's actually become one of my instructors. Her, even Bryant Sadiarin, who is the other, the male singer on that song and musician, him too, been with me for years. And he is also now one of my instructors. You know, so it's such a cool situation to see them growing. Kaylin Landry from Oh Holy Night. been with me I think since 2013 so it's been a long time you know so I, I love it and just to see it as they evolve as they grow you know they they deal with the desire and the want to do things yeah. but they still have to also deal with the personal side of music being vulnerable and visible which is huge for this generation yeah it's a huge lesson to learn is is to be able to open up and and really be able to express yourself yeah I probably deal with that 80% of the time 20% of the time is everything else and that's why I say I focus on relationship so it seems to me that producing a Christmas album is something that artists kind of aspire to one day mm -hmm. and so I'm, I'm curious to know how did you and your students arrive at the decision to record a Christmas album and if you could talk a little bit more about how you chose the songs for the album. So every year, Namako Pu'uvai has a performing arts hoike. And our hoike is at the Hawaii Theater. And so we just had ours on the 15th, 16th, 17th of October. And that whole time, I was planning on doing actually a Christmas, you know, like a, a Christmas special. Record, stage, sound equipment, the whole nine pick locations, and then 
I think halfway through the Hoike, I was looking at it and I'm like, nah, let's do an album. What is more relevant to my my work as an educator and also the studio and the kids because I'm building musicians, not really actors per se, or uh, stage people. They need to learn how to be in front of a live audience more than in front of a camera. Cameras are easy nowadays, it seems, right? So as long as it's within their comfort zone, they're willing to jump in front of any camera. So I thought that, ah, no, maybe the Christmas special, we can do that next year. So, and I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to do an album, you know, me and all my brilliance, I was like, ah, Christmas album. So I kid you not, bro. My kids were hustling. They were working so hard. And my team, Rustin and Tim, have been working so hard that we put this whole project together, literally from top to bottom in three weeks. No joke. And so my kids, it was another way of me to teach them about the crunch in the industry because time is money, right? Uh, that's the real side of <clears throat> recording, you know, and, and it takes a lot of money, bro. Now, me, I do it purely out of passion. If you're my student, the rest is free. You don't have to pay extra for all this type of stuff because it's a learning opportunity. So I put them on the spot in 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 no shakes dude no problem no hesitations and sometimes we ran into some hiccups here and there but it's just like any other production in real life so they got to learn what it's really like and what you don't even have a body of work first right like you're saying which is very true normally you you know you lay your foundations you establish yourself and if you do really well then you start to you know, get into Christmas albums and other projects. But you know what? I work with kids. Who wouldn't want to listen to kids during Christmas? You know what I mean? Like, I'd rather listen to kids. Plus, it was a way for me to put my kids under a crunch. And um, I just thought it was a crazy idea. Probably not the smartest decision I've ever made. But it worked out, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling that it's going to be a significant experience for them. Can you just go a little bit deeper into some of the things that the kids learned during the recording process? Yeah, it's a whole different beast because when you perform live versus when you're recording in the studio, precision is key. Timing is everything. Now, to play with a metronome, right, which is that click, that and then to stay on time with it and yet still produce a good feel, a rhythm that feels good and a time structure that feels good is very difficult. So my kids would find themselves like, oh my gosh, what is this? And it's very frustrating if you don't know how to handle it the first time or if you don't know what to do or if you don't practice. There have been instances where producers, engineers will tell artists to shut down, go home, get it right, and come back because it's that tight of intent sometimes and if you don't practice with it if you don't put the time in uh, really focusing in on that and trying to get the right feel and the right time it's difficult it's frustrating and makes you want to quit so my kids have have dealt with all of that a little bit and you know but at the same point in time it's an experience right so i try to cover and and alleviate a lot of those excess stresses that that is there but um one thing i did not cover them on was the vocals and and the rhythms you know you need to at least do that So they've all applied themselves in their craft. And then I have a fantastic team that would help to coach them through it. You know, how to relieve and alleviate stress and and anxiety. Because a lot of it is you're dealing with that when you're going in. You can practice all you want. But if you're nervous as heck and you don't know how to calm yourself down, that's a whole nother thing. Precision is key, but one other thing that I've learned when it comes to making albums is if it feels good, you're fine. There's always ways around it because you gotta you gotta apply what you learned in the real 
music environment like a live gig you know you're going for what feels good are people dancing are they enjoying it are they smiling are they talking are they liking what you're doing are they clapping are they engaging so you got to kind of treat your recording process the same way with your students and so it was a whole different ball game for them and i think they did fantastic like i'm super proud of this project it's like next level when you think about it and then you actually listen to it and then you're thinking wait what these are students these are kids Ah, oh, dude. And it gave them a place to really explore their creativity. And that too, that's another whole thing that you got to deal with, right? Because most of us as artists, we're exposing our thoughts in our heart and, and just the way we think. And we're always worried like, oh gosh, will they like it? Will people care about it? Are they going to tease me? Right? You know, so like, dude, I swear, man, it's like a whole therapy session. <laughs> But it's really good. So, I mean, as long as I kept it fun and relaxing, uh, then it's great. Jonah, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for hanging out and talking the story with me. Thank you, brother. No, thank you for having me, man. That was Hawaiian music, musician and music instructor Jonah Davis talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. To check out that holiday album, A Vintage Christmas, um, you can find a link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. And we have to go. Three more days to Christmas. But up tomorrow we talk contact tracing now that COVID cases are soaring. Got a COVID story to share? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or you can tweet us at HI Conversation. And our email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. The Conversation.